0: Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, a community supported podcast exploring our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. As a show mostly reliant on listener support, we are calling in for more direct contributions starting at just $2 to help us reach our Patreon goal to be able to keep the show going. So if you're learning from us and valuing these conversations, join our community at greendreamer.com support. And also we just relaunched our weekly newsletter. So if you want our episodes, recommended resources and juicy takeaways sent to you, you can sign up at greendreamer.com. And now on to today's episode where we're speaking with Shilpa Jain. I love that phrase, hurt people hurt people, and I was
1: you know, doing some of my work several years ago and someone, someone added, and they create institutions that hurt people. So hurt people hurt people, and create systems that hurt people. And I also see that like I I look at colonization and I know that in order to colonize, a person has to be separated first from themselves and from the earth. They have to be separated from their own humanity. How can I dehumanize another person and see them as less than, unless that's already been done or I've experienced that in some way inside of myself.
0: Shilpa serves as the executive director of YES, and she is a facilitator, author, and educator on topics including globalization, creative expressions, ecology, democratic living, innovative learning, and unlearning. One of Chopa's pivotal earlier moments was when she left what she names the trappings of academia, DC, and the path of professionalism that were laid before her so that she could work in greater alignment with her soul's calling. So she begins here by sharing about that turning point in her life.
1: I kind of had a, a somewhat traditional upbringing. I was coming from a family of immigrants from India and grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, went to public school, was a good student, went to an Ivy League school, You know, had all of the things that were laid out for me. My parents, because of immigration policy, were allowed into the US. My father's an engineer, my mother's a doctor, so they had all of the kind of professional degrees that set me up and set my brother up for like a particular kind of life and I was well on that path and already early on in my education experience I started questioning the the way education was set up in that I saw like a lot of my friends who we all started out together were slowly tracked and separated and a lot of people's talents and gifts were sort of thrown out of the system so already in high school, I was like, I don't understand why we're testing people and why we think that is a measure of intelligence, because I saw all of these friends with, you know, now what I know is like different kinds of intelligences, different kinds of gifts, different kinds of strengths. Those weren't valued because they weren't in the traditional setting. So I was I was already questioning some of that, went to college, and that questioning continued. It deepened. And then, as I graduated and went forward, I was working in international development in Washington, D.C. And the projects that I was working on and the way that I sort of saw international development working was, it felt very dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. And inconsiderate, honestly, of the diversity of people's realities and, and the way people wanted to live. It sort of was promoting that there was only one right way, only one good way and had to be industrial and it had to be kind of the model of the US or Europe and have you know this kind of homes and these kinds of ways of connecting and collaborating. And Having grown up in the states and seen like how much disconnection was happening for people. now I have more words for that. at that time, I could just see like this doesn't really work for a lot of people. There's a lot of disconnection. there's a lot of depression, um, anxiety, stress, and you know the focus on money and, and material things wasn't necessarily making people happy and yet that was what was being promoted through international development and international education development, which is what I was specifically focused on. And so I had an experience that kind of kicked it all off for me. I was sent to Morocco as part of the company that I was working with. And I was sent to Warzazat, which is a rural rural area of Morocco, where the Bedouin community, which are like the indigenous people of Morocco, that's where they live and, and, and interacting with the children of this community. And they're just Beautiful vibrancy and energy. And the project was to put them into these like concrete (laughs) boxes of schools in these desert communities and have them, you know, use these learning corners, like different corners where there would be different things happening. And I just like looked at this and I'm like, these are the, these children, this community has been like thousands of years in the desert. And with an ecological background that I had I was like we need to really learn from them not like the other way around we don't need to disconnect them further we need to learn how do they survive because that's what's coming for us all of these challenges and climate and how to be resilient and how to be culturally connected and and they were so creative and all these things were happening and I I got really sick after that project and I just was like I can't I can't fathom how this can work can make any sense and so I tried for the next like several months to try to find something good, you know, find somewhere where people were really being respected and fine and appreciating the diversity of of different ways of living and learning and I couldn't find it. And that really was like yeah, it just really soured me to the to the field overall and I thought, oh, you know, first I thought maybe that people just don't know. And and over time, I realized actually maybe people do know, and that this system actually is reinforcing itself. So yeah, that yeah. it actually benefits people to continue to disconnect others from their land and their culture and their language and and so on. So
0: it's yeah. kind of mind boggling how the entire dominant educational system is kind of like cookie cutters that you know mold people into sort of these cogs to serve this greater machine of constant economic growth as the one way to measure and determine societal, quote unquote, progress. And I do find that it is very dehumanizing Mm -hmm. in that it devalues so many different facets of who we are as people and who we yearn to be deep inside. And alignment is a word that I've noticed you use quite a bit. And as you share, your work aims to uncover ways for people to free themselves from dominating, soul-crushing institutions and to live in greater alignment with their hearts and deepest values, their local communities, and with nature, end quote. In envisioning our path forward... This is sort of the minority, but I've definitely spoken with people who believe that our societal problems are because our institutions are not strong enough and because they're losing grip over people. Therefore, we must strengthen our current institutions so that we can better address things like hunger and access to clean water and so forth. But I'm curious to hear your perspective on how everyday people's deep yearnings and values have become misaligned. When most are directed to sort of serve the agendas of these dominant institutions, as opposed to maybe their own communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you name it right there.
1: You know, it's it starts at such a young age where, because of the education that we're receiving, it is fundamentally not connecting to what's going on inside of us, what's happening in our families, what's happening in our local places. We're not connecting to that. We're usually connecting to esoteric information that's not really relevant for the most part, you know, and think about how many hours a day, day after day, year after year that young people spend doing that in traditional education. And I know a lot of wonderful teachers who are really trying to make it different and trying to build those connections. And I see people trying to to make that transformation happen in the existing system, so I don't want to act as though that's the only thing happening, and yet at the same time we see that that's been the predominant mode, as you said, the cookie cutter kind of thing, which which I think is what separates people, right? So then there isn't this oh like who am I really? What am I here for? What is the particular genius you know or particular gifts that I've been brought to this world for in this time in this place? What's you know what's there for me, and how does that relate to the other people here, and how does that relate to The environment that we're in, and yeah, issues of both social justice and environmental care and stewardship, right? They're all intertwined. And so I think because people don't get much opportunity for many, many years of their life to reflect on that, especially when they're most curious, open, you know, porous stage of life, I think it it creates that, you know, disconnection. And I don't know if you've seen the film that came out uh, last month called The Wisdom of Trauma. Not yet. I would I highly recommend it to you and to all the folks who are listening because it talks about how we actually have a traumatized society you know from the get go and part of it is of course those those terrible events that happen but why do those terrible events that happen to us how do we react to them and relate to them well a lot of that disconnection you know those those events that are often triggered by other people's disconnection whether that's abuse or harm or some other kind of addiction that's often, those things are triggered by other people's disconnection. We get disconnected. That furthers the trauma in our whole society. And those institutions that have been set up, and I I do, you know, originally I had this idea, okay, if it was just good people in these institutions. They would change the institutions. But over time and over my own processes of learning, I'm like, oh, the institutions are actually set up for, in large part, for the dislocation, for the disconnection. And that was a fundamental shift in my own thinking. I used to think, oh, the system's broken. We need to fix it. And then I started to think, actually, the system's working as it intended. We need to let it go and build new things and build different ideas and options that are more rooted from our own inner questions, our own interactions, deep interactions, authentic interactions and relationships with each other, with the earth, and how we can build from there. And we have, of course, we also have all of those models that exist around the world, And in many, many communities. So we can draw from those. It's not always reinventing the wheel, but it is like, huh, maybe we turn to and draw inspiration from other people who are a little bit less institutionalized and have some other access to to some other information and ways of being.
0: Right. So, yeah. What you were just talking about speaks to this common saying that has inspired your parallel thinking in terms of collective healing and liberation, this idea that hurt people hurt people. How do you tie this sort of individualized explanation to the greater systems of extraction and exploitation that so many are hurt by and bound within today? And also, Mm. I wonder, are we not going deep enough into history when we attribute a lot of our global crises today to something like colonialism? Because what if it leads us to overlook the historical traumas of those who had inflicted harm in those times and felt a need to dominate others, of course, not to dismiss accountability but to reach a point where we can trace the roots even more deeply and you know see people more deeply and reverse this pattern of hurt to find collective healing.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. So I love that phrase hurt people hurt people and I was, you know, doing some of my work several years ago and someone someone added and they create institutions that hurt people. So hurt people hurt people and create systems that hurt people. Hmm. And, and so but conversely, healing people are healing people and creating systems that are healing people. And you know, over time, what I've realized is actually both of these things are operating almost all the time. There's the cycle of hurt that's happening, and there's a cycle of healing that's happening. And in any moment, I might be the one hurting or hurt or healing or supporting the healing, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so all of those roles are are coexisting at any given moment, as as they might be for any one of us in the world. And I also see that, like I I look at colonization and I know that in order to colonize, a person has to be separated first from themselves and from the earth. They have to be separated from their own humanity. How can I dehumanize another person and see them as less than, unless that's already been done or I've experienced that in some way inside of myself. And so I, yeah, looking further back, looking further back. And, you know, I I read the book Ishmael many, many years ago. I don't know if you've read that, but what what they talk about is like, 10,000 plus years ago, actually, when we separated from the land and the first separation was thinking that we were better than animals. We were better than the land, uh, better than, yeah, better than animals and we could control the land and that separation. And so that book kind of chronicles that separation and then what it gave rise to, because as I disconnect from earth and my my place in the web of life and my part in the web of life and see myself as above the web of life as a human being, then that can give rise to these complex societies that create more hierarchies, that create more separation, more division and, and divisiveness. And of course, that grows and grows and grows and over time. And because the divisiveness begets more divisiveness, um, the trauma begets more trauma, right? So... The traumatized person experiences that they, in, in, you know, imbibe that trauma because we're human, because we have reactions, you know, so we take on, I take on that trauma and I take that trauma to somewhere else. And then I traumatize something else and I create systems. If I have that role or that power in society, I can create systems that enact or further solidify that trauma. And so more people experience that trauma. And oftentimes the way it works is it's very tricky, right? Because I, I'm like, I'm taught, oh, this is a good thing. There's a part of my moral goodness that wants to be intact in that whole process. So though I'm trying to like do something, do, though I may be doing something that's fundamentally separative, I'm actually thinking, oh, this is something good, right? So all colonizers had a, a civilizing agenda, a moral agenda, right? It wasn't just like we want to exploit and rule and take. There was also this work to make it, oh, no, no, we're doing something better for these people, we're doing something better for this land. When we cut it all down, we're doing something better for it, right? There's a story that that gets woven into that. And though why I can look back and you can look back and be like, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't sound right at all. I see how all of the time the mind is trying to justify anything that is separating or distancing or dehumanizing or violent. And so how do we work with that? And And for me, all of that work comes down to like, slowing things down and looking at it more deeply and creating space where we can tune in more deeply beyond the mind into the heart wisdom, into the spirit wisdom, into the body wisdom, which actually gives us much more information about what's actually happening, right? Because my mind can construct any kind of story, but my eyes, my heart, my soul, my body, they they sort of can see things a little bit deeper, right? Beyond the mind. And so This is why sort of the unlearning process, the being in community process, all of that is really vital to my own work. And and really noticing every moment I separate, every moment I create a distance, oh, that's another moment that there's an opportunity for healing, that that comes out of trauma and that that will be inflicting trauma further. And how can I slow that down and and try to weave it towards that that cycle of healing instead Mm -hmm. um, and do that collectively, not just alone?
0: A theme that I see across your thinking is looking at the practices that are causing harm and then sort of flipping them on their heads. So we're moving away from that. So for example, the idea that hurt people hurt people. Uh, you take that to healing people or healing people and creating systems that are healing people. And even deeper, you say freeing people are freeing people and creating systems that are freeing people. And on a similar note, you look at the strategy of divide and conquer, and you flip this around as well to speak to how we can not cave into separation, competition, and this atomization of our senses of communities and selves. Can you expand more on this, especially given that a lot of people are having to work against these divisive forces within a culture of individualism that, even without any external pressures, might lead to a narrowing purview of the self?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know what what you named and how I'm trying to to reflip it is is exactly <laughs> what's alive for me too in my work and. Um, so I think it all starts with that that acknowledgement of like the I, right? That I exist. And it sounds funny because it's not about promoting individualism, but it is recognizing that there is a being there. Since there's so much work to generalize us and abstract and make people not uh, seen, to, t- to actually take the time to just start to see myself and see other people is actually a fundamentally... a a massive shift you know, because we're statistics, because we're numbers, because we're just points on a percentage chart. But that's not the truth. The truth is like, who are we? Who am I? What's going on? And can I see that, take the time to see that for myself and also see that in others? And that takes slowing down, right? And that is directly counter to the, the culture of individualism. The individualism is about separation, right? The individualism is like, I don't see I matter, but nothing else matters. But the even I mattering part doesn't really click, right? Like there's often a lot of lack of self-worth that's behind that individual's greed or something like that. It's like, I don't matter. So I'm going to try to prove I matter by consuming more, taking more, closing the door to seeing other relationships and other people and especially our connection to the earth. So the counter to that is actually, like, can, we have, can we have an ICU, like an intensive care unit, an ICU, but I see you, I see you, you know, I'm taking time to see you and you are taking time to see me. And that is a process and seeing, seeing where we are, seeing our earth around us, seeing the people who live here, seeing the people who are around us, seeing taking the time to see and to really see and to go deeper into that. And so, for example, one of the tools that feels really important when we talk about this is a a tool, a methodology called appreciative inquiry. And it's a way to look for what is alive, what is working, what is thriving. How do I look for that? And looking towards that through my questions, through my inquiry, through my curiosity, I can build what's growing, what's working, what's really healing, what's nurturing, what's connective. It's contrary a bit to critical analysis, right? Where I'm looking for what's not working and pointing that out and noticing this problem, that problem, this problem, which is not a bad thing. I don't want to dismiss it. It's just that usually when I'm looking for what's not working, I find myself more disconnected and more disempowered. And it's harder to make the bridge to like, oh, I want to help what, what's, what's working. I want to I flip that around. I can get really mired down into what's not working. And I noticed that, that was a lot of my college education was focusing on what doesn't work. Mm. And that critical analysis in social justice work and activism also was such a strong part of my work initially that I was like, oh, this is, it's so easy to break everything down, to find the flaws, to find the problems. And yet it doesn't help me. It doesn't help me create, it doesn't help me generate. So what do I wanna look for? I wanna look for where are relationships that are thriving? Where am I thriving? Where do I feel most alive? Who can I be connected with? Who inspires me? Who motivates me the way they're, they're being, uh, of their being? Where are, are groups that are doing things that are inspirational, that are connective, that are restorative or connective? So that kind of flip really shifts. That's like one of those ways to start to make that flip from the hurt and the focus on the pain and the wrong, which is not, it's it's okay to have that come up. I'm not trying to say it can't. It's just that we have to notice How we make space for that and then how we also make space for what we want to see growing and what we want to be moving towards. And oftentimes in in even making space for the hurt and the pain, what I've learned over time is it's just space that people want to have that acknowledged. Yeah, I was hurt. Yeah, this thing was painful. Yeah, this thing was terrible that happened. When we acknowledge it and make space for it, it can also move. It can flow. It can flow out of us instead of being stuck that we're just constantly Defining ourselves against what didn't work, against our own pain, against the thing that was wrong, instead of defining that, we we acknowledge, yeah, this doesn't work. We let it fall, and we say, well, what, what do we want to grow? You know, not as a like immediate answer, but as a space in between. You know, is this making space for the grief, making space for the loss, making space for the pain, and then as we make that space, we find that there's a lot more energy to engage with the creative element on the other
0: side. Yeah. I really resonate with your call to appreciative inquiry because I look to a lot of these counterculture movements. For example, something like degrowth or degrowth economics, which has been proposed as a sort of systemic change that we need to address this underlying capitalistic system of endless economic growth. And for me, in my mind, that's still centering on what you don't want and what's not working. So when you're still centering this form of degrowth on this economic system that devalues a lot of who we are and a lot of forms of care and certainly all elements of our earth as well, I wonder what it would mean to recenter growth on the things that would bring enrichment and fulfillment to our lives. So what if we were to center you know, a sort of regrowth of intimacy, of relationships, of community, of vitality, meaning, purpose, and et cetera. So it's sort of like a reorientation towards what we want to build. And that isn't a fixation on how do we get rid of what isn't working? Again, that is important as well. But it's sort of like this mindset and relational shift that I've been really called to reorient myself towards. And I know that you have a multicultural background that is a mix of Eastern and Western cultures like I can relate to as well. I'm curious what has stood out to you as the differences between cultures of collectivism that are more dominant in the East and ones of individualism that are more dominant in the West in terms of how they foster personal transformations, community building, and even different approaches to activism.
1: Yeah, I think I can tie that together in some ways. I mean, I, my, so my work takes me all over. I, I get to work both in the U.S., um, through the jams that we have in the States and, and Canada and also, you know, a lot in the Middle East and Egypt and Pakistan and Jordan and, and India. And so I've gotten to travel, you know, a fair amount and be in a lot of different cultural experiences. And what I realized is like, this personal, interpersonal, and systemic, what you just named, that personal transformation, the community building, and the connecting in our interpersonal relationships authentically, and especially learning how to work through conflicts together, and, and then the systemic transformation, the world that we're trying to build, the things that we're feeling you know, inspired to grow more of or to, to work through, they are all so deeply intertwined. And every place I go, there's a unique ethos of that combination, where in some cases, like the work really needs to be to, to take some more time to see each of us as as people, like our own inner work, our own personal contributions, our own individual in a way, like taking some time to really notice the individual because they are often obscured by the collective. And then on the other side, sometimes we really need to do more work to heal the collective because people have spent a lot of time thinking about themselves, but not so much like what are these relationships, how, do, how are we bound up together, what is reciprocity look like? And in all cases, I would say conflict is still something that people really, uh, like all over the world, you know, struggle with, whether that's inner conflict and like the conflict within ourselves with our inner critics or the inner judge inside of us that, you know, says you're not good enough, you're not worthy, you can't try, you can't risk, you can't do this, whatever it might be makes the stories about ourselves. So that inner work is kind of pervasive across the world, as is the interpersonal conflict, the conflict with others, and how to really notice that people can go into a reaction that doesn't necessarily mean who they are. Same with me. I might go into my reactions. That doesn't mean that's who I am. And how do we slow that down and come into what we talk about is like the stretch zone, the space where I'm not in my reaction. And I'm also not in my comfort zone, but I'm in my space of like stretching, listening slowing down, speaking from my heart, speaking my truth, listening for the other's truth and working through that together. And then the systemic transformation, again, around the world, people are like, okay, what does this mean? How do we really reconnect to earth in meaningful ways and and really see that wisdom as channeling into what we're doing? How do we really connect, reconnect to each other in our diverse cultures? And so I feel incredibly blessed to grow up and have have had the benefit of growing up as an Indian American, traveling to India, living in India for 10 years through my 20s, and then also living in the States, speaking Spanish fluently. And so working in other cultures Mm -hmm. as well, and, you know, getting to connect with people in many cultures that I actually were not my birth culture or my ancestral culture, but like are so intertwined. And so I feel a lot of benefit from that because I can see like, there are uniquenesses in every single place. There are uniquenesses in every single human. And there are common threads that you know weave through all of our hearts and our, our beings. And so when we can have the both and, the both and in all of that, it feels really generative, you know, and, and and it is healing because it's not making a decision like, okay, this culture has to be this way and only this is all it's, you know, it has, and and vice versa. This culture will always have this limit and it can't do this. But like how do we grow? How do we learn from each other and integrate more fully into our wholeness? That wholeness is something that each of us has access to and collectively that we have access to um, when we open ourselves to that in different ways. Mm-hmm. So, so that's been beautiful, and and similarly with you know our, our just our previous thread, you know I often had this you know going into my work I was like okay but I don't I, you know first I was in the very critical stage of everything and and finding all the problems then I was sort of in the appreciative inquiry stage, and then I came across this framework from my friend Jody Lasseter through her work with Joanna Macy, and it's called the four R's and the Rs are different approaches to social change so reform working with the system within the system the first r reform working within the system the second r resist working to stop harmful actions that the system is doing both of those are still interacting with the existing system and then there's create recreate as the third r like building other approaches building other ways and then things that are more in alignment, things that are feel more reflective of the of the total values. And then the fourth R is imagine and reimagine. So bringing in the realm of like vision and artists and shamans and healers and academics and other people who are trying to like just help us see different possibilities and create in our imagination um, before we can even create on the on the ground. And when I came across this, I was like, oh, all of these approaches that I've seen in my life fight with each other. They are like, oh no, you can't res- well, resist. You're just a bunch of haters. Oh well, you recreators. You're just so fringe. What's the point of that? Oh you, oh you reformers. You're just work. You're just like sold out, you know, and in- working in the- for the man. And like, <laughs> oh you reimaginers. You're just in the ivory tower. You have your head in the clouds, you know. Like, what's the point? And all of that fighting with each other actually is missing the point that all of those different approaches have value and they're bringing something in this time. And they all have a limit, you know, nothing is perfect. And this idea that we have to have like one way to do everything, I think is part of the unlearning that we need to get, you know, that I know I need to work on is like, ah, it's not one way. It's actually when the many ways can connect and see each other and be woven together. And I can't do all of those other ways. Like maybe my focus is really around recreating and reimagining. That's sort of what I've been brought to this world for. But I can support those and reform. I can support those and resist. I can weave us together. I can bring energy, positive energy, towards that, and also say, like, okay, you're doing that piece good for you because we need to have some of that piece in there. We need to have that there. So how do I change in that? You know, how can I be more open to that and sort of see the web instead of like the the silos? And so I think that connects to this whole multicultural piece as well, right? Like everybody's got some part of this puzzle, you know, and nobody has the whole. And yet when we come together and listen to each other, learn from each other, then we start to build this whole that is profound
0: and inspiring. What you said was so relatable because I definitely have noticed within the activism space where people are working, people's approaches to activism are different and there's a tendency for different factions to take the other, you know, people that are focused on a different approach down to say that, you know, you should come do what I'm doing because this is, this is superior. And of course there are, there's always discussions to be had in terms of, you know, how we can better strategize so we can drive change more effectively. But I love the idea of, as you've so eloquently said, every conflict is a chance to have a breakdown or a breakthrough. Every moment I can be building a wall or a bridge end quote. And I guess what this leads me to think about is how we do very often have internal conflicts as personal beings. But at the end end of the day, we don't, well, sometimes we do like beat ourselves up over it. But at the end of the day, we know that we're, that sort of conflict is guiding us towards maybe the best decisions that we might be able to make given a set of circumstances. And so it leads me to wonder, you know, what would it mean for us as communities and collectives to take on this sort of greater, more collective consciousness so that when I have a conflict with another person, I'm not I'm not going in with the intention of wanting to win and convince this person to mm-hmm. think exactly as I do, but I'm able to sort of let go of my ego and acknowledge that there is a deep there's a bigger collective consciousness that i am a part of and that we together make up
1: yes yes exactly exactly that i mean what i think what it takes is first just the awareness that that's a possibility because i know i kind of learned growing up like conflict is bad conflict is a problem and it's taken me time but over the years i've like oh no conflict is actually neutral It's the meeting point of differences. I have a perspective, you have a perspective. And our differences could be like, I like tea, you like coffee, um, or it could be something much bigger. And yet it's the meeting point of differences. So how do I want to approach that difference? That's the question. I could approach the difference, as you said, by digging my heels in and being like, "This is the way. This is the only way. You have to like tea. If you don't like tea, then you're, you know, you're stupid. You're nothing. You're, you know, you're meaningless." And you and you could do the same thing. What are you talking about? Coffee? Coffee is the only thing that matters. You know what are you? And I'm i making it trite, but honestly, many times this is the level of the, of the thing. I see it this way from my perspective, from my values, from my upbringing without recognizing i'm seeing it this way because of my values because of my upbringing because of my context because of whatever and it's just a way of seeing it it whatever the it might be right and you have the same so i could meet that conflict digging in or i could meet that conflict with curiosity i could meet that conflict with vulnerability i could meet that conflict with a desire to learn right and so i could be like huh so why do you like coffee so much? What, what's it about your background that made you like coffee that way? What, what, why do you feel so connected to that? And be curious about that, not in a, you know, well, why, why would anyone like coffee? Why, why do you like it? But like, well, no, really, why do you like it? I want to learn. I want to understand your experience in this. I want to understand what's going on from your perspective. And what often happens is that that curiosity and then vulnerably sharing, hey, this is what's going on for me. This is where tea comes from for me. This is why I I feel so close to it. This is what's important to me about it. You know, this is where it comes from in my experience. And once we hear each other's stories, that's the game changer. You know, I can't be the same person because once I've heard your story, I've tapped into that collective consciousness that you're speaking about. I can't hear it at the level of opinion. It really doesn't click, click because the opinion often operates in this kind of like, I would say this like very thin, uh, <laughs> it's a very thin thread, right? It's in it's just in the mind. But what's behind that is a story. What's behind that is experience and feeling, which are vulnerable. And when I can get tap into the vulnerability by listening to your vulnerability and sharing my own, then I tap into the collective consciousness. And that's what transforms the conflict. That's what makes it an opportunity for a breakthrough. Um, whether that's my own inner conflict or my conflict with someone else or my conflict with the system or my conflict, you know, in some other way, shape or form. Anytime I can tap into my curiosity, letting go of the judgment and becoming curious. Anytime I can tap into my vulnerability, the story that's within me, the story that's within the other person or people or context, I can start to understand it more. And then I'm tapping into that, that wholeness again, and also, and, and the, the thing that trips us up often though, is that I get into the, the winning or the convincing before I can get into the vulnerability. And sometimes that creates more divisiveness. So the rift gets bigger um, because it's hard because my, my mirror neurons fire. Oh no, there's something going on here. Ah, my amygdala kicks in. Okay, I got a fight or flight right now mm-hmm. or freeze or appease. You know, there's all of these approaches that I have to just try to, to survive. And I take this moment about tea and coffee as a moment of survival. In some cases, it is, it becomes that, right? But often initially, it's not that. Initially, there's a place of like, huh, what's going on there? What's, what's curious there? And then sometimes if that conflict's unaddressed and it gets institutionalized, you know, we've seen that happen over history, right? Where, where it becomes a matter, a literal matter of life and death, not just a, a mental matter of life and death, but the brain can't distinguish between the two, to be honest. So right now it's a level of tea and coffee, but I might be treating it as the same as if I was actually facing a life threatening situation. And so a lot of that process to slow things down there, that's like, that's some of the structural work that we can be working on as a, as a community, as a collective, like how do we, how do we organize our time? How do we organize our days? How much time do we get to be slow, to breathe, to notice our bodies, to connect with our bodies and our food, our water, you know, what's going in and out of our bodies? How do we notice our stress? What is causing stress in our lives? Can we shift those structures? Can we shift those models so that we create more spaciousness? Because conflict is always coming. Conflict is always also inevitable, right? So how do I learn practices and learn ways and be with people who are like, yeah, let's try to do this differently. It's hard work. I'm working a different muscle. I'm entirely working a different muscle that doesn't get worked if, unless I work on it, you know? So, and yet I can, I can do it and I can do it collectively and I can do it personally and I can have structures that support me to do that. And so that work is what helps us make that shift right out of the, the reaction and the the breakdown and the bigger breakdowns because One conflict plus one conflict doesn't equal two; it equals four. Mm. Plus another equals ten. Plus another conflict makes twenty-five, and very quickly it 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 escalates. It's not a it's not a linear process of conflict intensity. You know, it's just like it actually is. It spirals very quickly. So I have to learn how to slow down. Yeah. So at level one or level four, I'm a little slower than before. It gets to twenty-five or hundred, where it's already gone. Pretty, pretty far out,
0: you know? Yeah. So, just as, for example, biodiversity within an ecosystem is synergistic when these different beings and elements come together, it sounds like conflicts are synergistic as well in the other direction. And I think slowing down is definitely really important so that we create space and room to go deeper, to lean into our different ways of knowing. And Mm -hmm. a, a core principle. That guides your work which i believe speaks to this as well is love and spirit and you say mm-hmm. they're not just tools for personal wellness they enable individuals organizations and even movements to be guided by a deeper wisdom and to welcome the presence of the miraculous end quote especially in the climate and environmental activism space that is dominated by the logic of science and rational thinking it can be a challenge for people to lean into our different ways of knowing and to honor rather than dismiss the spiritual and the miraculous. So I'm curious to hear how this has become a central focus for you and how you think social and earth activism can benefit by holding more space for love and spirit.
1: Oh, such a beautiful question. Yes. (laughs) I mean... I would say, yeah, love and spirit are at the center of everything. To be honest, it's and truth, you know, which is deeply connected to that. Yeah, for me, what I've seen over time is that, you know, we have these we, we have these sayings that love conquers all, and yet it's. I would say it is true in a way because when I slow down enough to love myself and love others, then everything that I'm creating from that place is is fundamentally different it's fundamentally different. And spirit is such a core part of that, right? Because it is a tapping into that collective consciousness that you were talking about. It's tapping into ancestrals, ancestral wisdom, ancestors. It's tapping into the spirit guides that are all around us. Um, and certainly nature is full of that as well. And so when I make that time and space for myself, I notice the impact that it has on me. But when I see it happening, and at most of my work is with groups of people And when I see us bringing this opportunity for love and spirit, both in naming and noticing the connections that are there and giving space and opportunity for that, and also actively cultivating them. So whatever is present is welcome. And then noticing that we can cultivate love, we can cultivate spirit, we can cultivate truth that can then... Really, really shift the whole way a group operates and 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 works. And therefore, when we can do that on the ma- micro level, we can do it on the macro level. Like what happens as we build a culture that's rooted in that kind of mindset. And I have a friend, Ronnie Kutzman, who, who talks about culture as being made up of structures, skill sets, and mindsets. And so when I think about that, I'm like, okay, I can have the mindset of love and spirit, but I need to have skills that help me. Uh, Really express that, right? So those skills could be as simple as like eye contact or asking someone a question and listening for their answer. Really listening. Listening is a profound skill for love and spirit. Tapping in, feeling my own heart wisdom, and here and speaking my truth from my eye. You know what's happening for me. That vulnerability is a skill set. The skill set of of sometimes of consensual touch, right? Of of hugs, of caresses, or just a willingness to sort of see someone more deeply through body connection. Um, There's so many skill sets I can develop. And then there's structures that can really support all of that love and spirit to manifest in movements. And so, and and in in organizations, because it's like, how do I, how do we make the space? Okay. We're going to host our meeting, but this time in the meeting, instead of everybody talking at once, we're going to take some moments of silence and really hear if there's any deeper wisdom that's coming in through us from our spirit, our inner spirit, from our ancestors, or, you know what, before we start our meeting, we're going to go out and take 10 minutes in nature and just commune with the trees and the plants and 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 see what we can learn. Or we know what we're gonna invite someone to share a prayer from their tradition, or we're gonna invite someone to tell a story of their grandmother or grandfather and bring that into our space. There's so many ways that we can structurally also bring that in and and then have that space where those skills are being practiced of the listening, of the vulnerability, of the eye contact, of the of the hugs, of the you know, whatever it might be. And as that comes in, it it fundamentally alters the DNA of movements and organizations because they're rooted in not doing as I mean, they have the doing piece, too. They don't lose the doing, but the the being, the beingness of us comes through far more. And so I'm seeing who's there in the room with a sense of their being. And they're also seeing that. And when we root from there, then the work we end up doing is much more integrated, right? It's it's not we're not checking ourselves at the door and then trying to do work that's about wholeness and, and like making a better world. We need to bring ourselves there with it, right? And be with each other in that. So for example, in a lot of times I'm 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 doing work and someone comes into the the meeting or into the gathering and is really struggling with something. And one of the things that I I learned at a young age is that people matter more than an agenda item or even a principle, you know, or an idea. Like the person matters. So when I practice that, we like slow down and say, you know, we have time, what's going on? It's a learning, not just for that person, it's a learning for the entire community. It's an opportunity to slow down for all of us and see like, okay, am I here? What's going on for me? And here's a person who's expressing that in this moment. Can we tune in? Can we listen? Because there's something deeper that's coming through. And the love that shines through. You know, Most of the time, many people hold things in because they're afraid that they won't be loved if they're shared. What I see over and over again is when people share the thing that they feel it's hardest for them to share, they look around the circle, they look around who's with them, and they see more love in people's eyes for them. And that is fundamentally revolutionary. It shifts something so deep for that person's light, but also for the community light. Like, oh, this brokenness, this thing that's so hard and this is so painful for someone, I can be with them with that, which gives me a kind of power, gives me a kind of strength, a, a capacity. And then when I when I'm with that, I can be with the other places in our world that feel hurting or broken or lost. And I can be with them as they find their way back towards their own being. And I can be with them in that journey. And I see that shift happen. It's it's profound, you know? And so when we center that into our movements and organizations, then the work that we do, whether it's restorative justice or teaching in a school or being a lawyer for, you know, for the earth or whatever the thing is, that starts to become more holistically rooted in the the community that's there and in the wider world. And that effect is just... You know, it just I don't know. I can't explain how profound that is, but I I, I think you've seen it. So, yeah.
0: What is an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Publication, I would say Yes Magazine, not connected to our
1: <laughs> yes, but we're, we're deeply intertwined
0: in spirit. What personal mottos, mantras, or practices do you engage with to stay grounded?
1: Oh, so for me, the models of really tuning into my body is really important. So I I do a lot of core workouts and try to tap into my core, um, sleep, drinking a lot of water every day and trying to eat healthy and just moving, moving as much as I can every day, because I feel like in the body wisdom, a lot gets revealed. So, yeah.
0: And what happened? Some of your greatest inspirations recently.
1: Oh, I'm so inspired by, I mean, I'm so inspired by the young people in our world right now, you know, who are just standing up for all kinds of things and the movements around gender equality and, and LGBTQ movements, the movements around Black liberation. There's just so much that's actually, the, and then climate and people's loving loving of the earth and, and how young people are at the the heart of all of that work. It really, really inspires me. I'm also just so inspired by elders stepping up and forward into their elderhood. I feel like the intergenerational and multigenerational work that can happen in this time is 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 just, yeah, is everything. it's it's the closing of the loops and and bringing everything together. So, yeah.
0: Well, we are coming to a close, but Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Shilpa's work, you can head to yesworld.org. And you can also follow them on Facebook at Yes Community and on Twitter at Yes Changemakers. Shilpa, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Really appreciated this conversation and time with you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Oh, I just
1: want to appreciate all of you. I guess my final words would just be to you know, to take the time to really look inward and see who, who you are and what's there for you and trust that. And that wherever you look, there are people who want to join you in that. So no one is alone. We actually have community beyond measure in our lives. So just tapping into that.
0: This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To support our community-powered show to continue starting at just $2 or to make a larger tax-deductible donation, you can head to patreon.com greendreamer. Also, if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with friends or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps so much and we are so grateful. The song featured in this episode is Grandmother's Song from Hand Drum Songs provided to us by Indigenous Cloud. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.